From New York, this is Democracy Now! We have state cooperation with the Central African Republic. We will continue it. It is supported by the necessary agreements, and of course, our military advisors will continue their activities in the necessary and demanded quantity. After the Wagner Group's aborted mutiny in Russia, the Biden administration's imposed new sanctions on companies accused of profiting from the activities of the Wagner Group in Africa. This comes as Russian military police raided Wagner mercenary bases in Syria. We'll get an update. Then the impact of the climate crisis is being felt in the United States from the Midwest to the East Coast as millions face record heat and horrible air quality from smoke unleashed by wildfires raging in Canada. The media does a great job covering the smoke. But what about the fire? What's causing it? We'll look at the role of fossil fuel companies and calls for the media to end climate silence. And we go to Montana to a youth-led climate trial just ended after five days of dramatic testimony on who can be held responsible for the climate crisis. I joined this case out of love for Montana because I grew up here, I've spent my life here, and it's a beautiful place to call home. And so I am a plaintiff in, you know, in hopes of protecting my constitutional rights and creating a future where I can be confident in uh, a clean environment, a healthful life for myself and my descendants. And so after participating in trial, I'm excited to see what the outcome of this case is. We'll speak with one of the teenagers who sued Montana. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Smoke from nearly 500 wildfires in Canada is blanketing much of North America in an unprecedented haze, triggering air quality alerts in 20 U.S. states that are home to a third of the population. On Wednesday, the EPA's air quality index for major cities, including Chicago, Cleveland, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, and Toronto, reached unhealthy or very unhealthy levels as city skylines face into a shroud of smoky air. Air pollution near Detroit reached hazardous levels. Meanwhile, over 100 million people across the United States are under heat warnings and watches today as a heat dome that's lingered over Texas expands to southeastern states and parts of California brace for triple-digit temperatures. We'll have the latest on Canada's wildfires and the climate crisis later in the broadcast. In Sudan, heavy fightings resumed around the capital Khartoum, despite declared ceasefires marking the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Adha. Fighting between Sudan's army and the rival rapid support forces is heaviest in Sudan's most populous city, Amdurman, where residents report airstrikes and fierce anti-aircraft fire in civilian-populated areas. The U.N. says 10 weeks of heavy clashes in Sudan and ethnically motivated killings in the western region of Darfur have displaced nearly 2.8 million people. In France, anger over the police killing of a 17-year-old boiled over into protests for a second straight night in over a dozen cities. Protesters set fire to cars, trash cans, police stations, and launched fireworks at officers who responded with volleys of tear gas. France's interior minister said 150 people have been arrested. Some 2,000 riot police were called up in suburbs around Paris, including in Nanterre, where the teen, who's been identified only by the name Nahel M, 
Kim was shot dead Tuesday after he was pulled over for allegedly breaking traffic rules. Video posted on social media contradicts the claims of police who initially reported one officer shot the teen for driving his car directly at them. Instead, the video shows two officers standing beside the vehicle. One of them points a gun as a voice is heard saying, you're going to get a bullet in the head. The officer then fires at close range as the boy drives off. French President Emmanuel Macron called the teen's killing unexplainable and inexcusable. Macron also said the resulting protests were, quote, absolutely unjustifiable. French Prime Minister Elisabeth Borne condemned the actions of officers. The shocking images broadcast yesterday show an intervention that clearly does not seem to comply with the rules of engagement of our law enforcement officers. The U.N. Security Council has called for restraint on all sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict amid surging violence in the occupied West Bank. On Tuesday, U.S. Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations Robert Wood offered a rare diplomatic rebuke of Israel over the demolition of Palestinian homes and the incitement to violence by elected officials in Israel. We were also deeply troubled by Israel's recent announcements advancing more than 5,000 settlement units and reports of changes to Israel's system of settlement administration that expedite the planning and approval of settlements. The U.S. Navy says it will station its largest nuclear-armed submarine in South Korea for the first time in four decades. This comes after the South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yeol, and President Joe Biden agreed to a deal in April in which South Korea agreed not to develop its own nuclear weapons in exchange for a more aggressive U.S. nuclear posture toward North Korea. President Joe Biden's holding a pair of fundraisers with wealthy donors in New York today, ahead of the Federal Election Commission's June 30th disclosure deadline. On Wednesday, Biden flew to Chicago for a fundraiser with deep-pocketed Democratic donors at the home of Illinois' billionaire governor, J.B. Pritzker. Biden also used his Chicago trip to tout his administration's handling of the U.S. economy, embracing the label Bidenomics as a brand for his 2024 re-election campaign. Back in the United States, several sheriff's deputies in Rankin County, Mississippi, have been fired after two black men filed a lawsuit alleging torture and attempted sexual assault by officers. Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker say six deputies entered their home outside Jackson in January and handcuffed, kicked and waterboarded them, taunted them with racist slurs, attempted sexual assault and repeatedly electrocuted them with tasers. Jenkins says one deputy placed a gun into his mouth and pulled the trigger, lacerating his tongue and shattering his jaw. The men are seeking $400 million in damages from Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey and six deputies. The FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division have opened investigations. Here in New York, a white former U.S. Marine who choked black street performer Jordan Neely to death on a subway train has pleaded not guilty to charges of second-degree manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. Daniel Penny entered the plea at his arraignment in Manhattan court Wednesday before walking free on $100,000 bail. His next court appearance is October 25th. A legal defense fund set up by Penny's lawyers has raised nearly $3 million. Speaking outside the courthouse, after Penny's arraignment, Neely family lawyer Dante Mills promised justice. Daniel Penny killed the man. He took a life. And for everyone who thought donating $3 million would somehow make this go away or buy his pass, 
It's not going to happen. It didn't work. You can ask for a refund. We're here. Help is here. So from now on, when justice happens, don't be surprised and don't be shocked. The Biden administration's dropped its civil rights investigation into whether air pollution regulators discriminated against black communities in an industrial section of Louisiana known as Cancer Alley. Some 200 petrochemical plants span the majority black region over an 80-mile stretch of the Mississippi River. On Tuesday, the Environmental Protection Agency said in a court filing it had uncovered no finding of discrimination or other violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's despite initial findings that Louisiana environmental and health officials failed to provide accurate information to residents about airborne emissions of chloroprene, a hazardous chemical linked to lung and liver cancer. The Belgian chemical company Solvay has agreed to pay nearly $400 million to settle claims linked to drinking water contamination near its factory in southern New Jersey. The funds will be used to clean up pollution caused by PFAS, a class of toxic substances commonly called forever chemicals that don't break down in the environment or in the human body. PFAS have been linked to cancer, liver and thyroid disease, maternal mortality, birth defects and other health problems. Wednesday's settlement comes a week after 3M agreed to pay more than $10 billion to settle lawsuits claiming it knowingly used forever chemicals in its products despite risks to human health. This comes as Republican Congress members are promoting legislation that would weaken attempts to regulate PFAS while insulating many polluters from liability under the federal Superfund law. The United States has recorded its first cases of domestically transmitted malaria for the first time in two decades. Dr. Deborah Howry, the chief medical officer at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, said Tuesday the mosquito-borne disease was discovered in four people from Florida and one person in Texas. So it's a concern because malaria is a life-threatening disease. It's not often seen in the United States, and we haven't seen it domestically acquired in over 20 years. In 2021, malaria infected nearly a quarter billion people, killing more than 600,000 of them around the world. The disease is triggered by a parasite that's spread to humans by certain types of mosquitoes that thrive in warm weather and humid conditions. In recent years, those mosquitoes have expanded their ranges in ways that are consistent with climate change. And the head of the Teamsters Union says a third of a million workers at UPS will likely walk off the job August 1st after slamming the shipping company's proposed union contract as appalling. Teamsters President Sean M. O'Brien said in a statement, quote, the largest single employer strike in American history now appears inevitable. Executives at UPS, some of whom get tens of millions of dollars a year, do not care about the hundreds of thousands of American workers who make this company run, he said. The Teamsters are demanding UPS exchange its last, best and final offer no later than Friday. Earlier this month, 97 percent of unionized UPS workers voted to authorize a nationwide strike if managers don't agree to a new union contract by July 31st. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. 
A top Russian general has reportedly been arrested amidst a crackdown on military officials with close ties to the Wagner mercenary group. General Sergei Sorovikin was known to have a good relationship with Yevgeny Prigozhin, who led Wagner's aborted mutiny last weekend. Sorovikin was nicknamed General Armageddon because of his bombardment tactics in the Syrian conflict. He's not been seen since Saturday's armed revolt. The Moscow Times quoted a source saying, apparently, he, Sorovkin, chose Prigozhin's side during the uprising. Meanwhile, in Belarus, where Wagner Group leader Prigozhin is apparently now exiled, The New York Times is reporting on construction of a new military base for Wagner fighters who were given the option of relocating to Belarus after the group's failed uprising. Satellite images by Planet Lab show the construction about 80 miles from the Belarusian capital of Minsk and about 13 miles from a town with multiple military facilities. This comes as the Biden administration's imposed a new sanctions on companies accused of profiting from the activities of the Wagner Group in Africa. The Treasury Department says the sanctions will punish four companies based in Russia, the United Arab Emirates, and the Central African Republic that extract gold, diamonds, and other minerals to help fund the mercenary force. The sanctions were announced after Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said Monday Wagner mercenaries will not be withdrawn from Africa following last weekend's mutiny. Saudi news outlets are reporting Russian military police in Syria conducted raids on Wagner mercenary bases in Syria and arrested the head of the Wagner group in southern Syria. On Wednesday, a Russian foreign ministry spokesperson said leaders in Africa would decide whether Wagner forces will continue to work in their countries. Whether Wagner forces continue on in African countries, whether they continue to work under contracts and stay there, depends on the sovereign authorities of the African countries. For more, we're joined by Kimberly Martin, professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University. She's been working on the Wagner Group for years. Professor Martin, it's great to have you back with us. Um, if you can explain, um, you have the Wagner Group's aborted uh, mutiny in Russia. Um, this is followed by the United States saying they're imposing these sanctions on the group that's opposing uh, President Putin, right, the Wagner Group, whose leader, uh, known as Putin's chef, uh, Prigozhin, was formerly very close to Putin, but imposing sanctions on the group companies that are profiting from Wagner in Africa, from Mali to Central African Republic, and then we have Syria. Please explain how the Wagner group operates and what is the U.S.'s interest in cracking down on the group that's rising up against Putin, who's waging the war in Ukraine? Well, thanks for having me back. Um, this isn't the first time, certainly, that the United States has imposed sanctions against the Wagner Group or against Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, remember, it was very clear from the Mueller indictments that uh, Prigozhin was responsible with his internet research agency based in St. Petersburg uh, for election interference in the United States. Um, and so this is just another in a stream of sanctions that have been placed uh, against Prigozhin-affiliated organizations. And I think what's most significant 
significant about these sanctions is not the ones that are on the groups that are based in Russia or that are based in the Central African Republic, um, because they're unlikely to have any dealings with the United States or with the U.S. allies in any case. Uh, the most significant uh, is the sanction that was put against a firm located in the United Arab Emirates. Um, it has been known for a couple of years with very well-documented evidence in open source uh, 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 locations like the New York Times, um, that uh, Dubai has been a, a place where Russia could take the gold, in particular, that it is mining in Africa, send it for melting down in the UAE, and then get the cash for it into Russia at a time when Russia is under sanctions and isn't supposed to be engaged in the gold trade. And in May, the UAE came out with a statement that said, of course, we will continue to trade openly with our partners um, under UN uh, uh, mandates. Well, the United Nations Security Council does not have sanctions against Russia because, of course, Russia has veto power in the United Nations Security Council. And so in, a sense, in, in, in essence, that statement that was made in May by the United Arab Emirates was saying, we don't follow U.S. sanctions. And I think the significance of what happened in the last couple of days is the United States was saying that the UAE is not exempt from feeling the power of U.S. economic sanctions. And that matters because the UAE has a traditional strong defense relationship with the United States, but kind of an odd one because the UAE also has a strong defense relationship with Russia. So, Professor Martin, if you could uh, talk about some of these companies uh, that uh, Wagner has been involved with or actively running, uh, they're all over uh, Africa, certainly, and also elsewhere. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, in fact, in a, in a recent documentary, found that there were 64 companies, some of them shell companies, uh, linked that linked to Wagner, that were linked to Wagner and also linked Wagner to the Kremlin. Could you explain what we know about these companies and where all they operate? Sure. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind that when we're talking about these links, Wagner itself does not exist as an entity. Wagner, the Wagner Group is a contracting mechanism for the Russian uh, military intelligence agency. So the key person in all of this is actually Evgeny Prigozhin. He's the person who does the contracting for Wagner Group activities or has up until this point. And he is also the person who is associated with all of these various companies. He and his personnel have been linked to what all of these companies have been doing. I think it's really important to keep in mind that in Russia, we don't have any form of protection of private property rights. Um, and that Prigozhin was in charge of these companies, primarily not because he is um, some oligarch who has uh, all kinds of uh, economic talents and business talents um, and did this on his own. He was taking this role because of a patron-client relationship that he has with Vladimir Putin, which extends back back to the early 1990s uh, in St. Petersburg, um, and he was there on the behest of the Kremlin. So uh, now that we see that things are happening with Prigozhin, we're not exactly sure what they may be. Nobody has seen him since Saturday. Um, there are rumors uh, in the in the uh, Russian social media sphere that he has been told to get out of Russia and to liquidate all his business holdings by July 1st. We'll see if that actually happens. One thing to keep in mind is that it would be really easy for the Kremlin to just just put in place some other individual as the titular CEO of all these various companies. 
So no matter what happens to Prigozhin, I think it's very unlikely that it's going to affect Russia's presence in Africa, which has been built up very strongly since 2014, since the sanctions originally went into effect against Russia for its initial incursions into eastern Ukraine and Crimea. Um, and um, even though the statement came uh, in your um, top of the hour uh, uh, quoting of Lavrov saying that the African sovereign countries are going to be able to make their own decisions, uh, we know from a report that came out just in the last couple of days confirming things that the Wagner Group has essentially taken over sovereign control in much of the Central African Republic. And there's no way in the world that Russia is going to be leaving there, no matter what happens to Prigozhin, no matter what happens to the people who have been under this heading called the Wagner Group, um, who are essentially just contractors for the Russian uh, Defense Ministry and the Russian Military Intelligence Agency in one form or another. Professor Martin, do we have any idea of what kind of uh, money, what kind of resources are involved here? I mean, when uh, the Wagner Group was operating in Syria, they were tasked, of course, principally with defending the Assad regime. Uh, but one of their tasks was to defend and they captured four of the largest oil fields in Syria uh, in exchange for protecting the oil fields. Uh, they were given 25 percent of the production value from the fields. Uh, there are similar things uh, being said about the role that they've played uh, with gold mines in the Central African Republic. So what kinds of like how much money are we talking about, like hundreds of millions, billions of dollars? Nobody knows for sure, but let me just talk about some of the examples that you raised. In Syria, we have to keep in mind that Syria has never been a really major player in the world in terms of being an oil and gas producer. Russia is a very major player in terms of being an oil and gas producer um, and having other kinds of economic relationships with other countries who are major oil and gas producers. And so the significance of the Prigozhin takeover, the Wagner Group takeover of those oil and gas uh, uh, assets in Syria... I think most experts believe is less in terms of their actual economic value to Russia or to Prigozhin and more that it allowed Russia to establish a permanent economic presence in Syria, no matter what happens now that the war has been winding down over the last couple of years. And in particular, their presence in those oil and gas areas have prevented Hezbollah as a representative of the Iranian government, the Iranian regime, from having the ability to have oil and gas lines um, that transmit uh, from Iran uh, to Lebanon uh, through Syria um, in a way that would give Iran a dominating presence over the oil and gas, uh, especially the gas transmission lines in the Middle East. Um, and so there's been geopolitics involved here, I think, much more than uh, the importance of the funding has been for the Russian government in terms of what's happened in Syria. In the Central African Republic, most of the mines, both the gold mines and the diamond mines are artisanal. And that means that the uh, presence of the resources is very much on the surface of the land. And so you have people sitting there with um, shovels and pails and sieves um, uh, trying to get little pieces of, of minerals uh, from these mines. For the individuals involved in the actual mining, of course, it's a, it's a, it can be a, a just incredible find for them because they're coming from a very impoverished background. But again, for Russia, Russia has huge gold and diamond reserves of its own, huge gold and diamond reserves in various places around the world. So the monetary value of most of these mines is not very uh, high in terms of their relative value for Russia. 
The one um, uh, exception to this is the uh, uh, Namasima uh, mine. Uh, that is the one where the Wagner Group has been seen um, as really turning it from a uh, artisanal mine, a surface level mine, into an industrial quality gold mine. Um, as far as we know, that is not yet a finished process. And so the Wagner Group has not yet been getting um, industrial quality gold uh, to the extent that it would have been, uh, uh, that Russia would have been getting industrial industrial quality uh, uh, quantities and, and qualities of gold from other deposits that it has access to. But the, that is the mine that has now come under um, the U.S. sanctions. And that is the one where Wagner had the best uh, chance of actually making significant money. But again, there's no evidence that it is already getting significant money from these things. Um, and so it's more establishing a presence, um, perhaps getting some funding around the edges. Um, but uh, what we what we have seen is that the major funding that is going into the Wagner Group has either in the case of its activities in Ukraine come directly from the Russian government, which is something that Putin himself said on Monday in a, in a rather remarkable admission, um, or from the contracts that it has uh, with government officials in all of these foreign countries in Syria, in Libya, uh, not in the government in Libya, but in the, the warlord in eastern Libya, Khalifa Haftar, um, in Mali, in the Central African Republic, contracts that have all been done with the support of Russian diplomatic groups, uh, with Russian ministries like the energy ministry, um, but that are contracts for the Wagner Group to fulfill its duties there uh, rather than, in most cases, getting a great deal of money from the minerals that are actually coming out. Um, <clears throat> Professor Martin, I wanted to ask you about the human toll. We're talking about the money made from mining. But these very places that you're talking about, that the world media rarely covers when it comes to the enormous death toll, we're talking about the Central African Republic, we're talking about Mali, we're talking about Sudan. What is the role of the Wagner groups uh, in um, these conflicts? So we know in Sudan that when the original um, uh, uh, democracy uh, movement had been starting there, uh, when there was a series of coups that were going on in Sudan, we know that the Wagner Group was at least giving advisory assistance um, to the Sudanese military government to try to put down the protesters violently. Um, it's not clear that the Wagner Group per se has a uh, um, a security role uh, right now that is significant in Sudan. We know that they're still engaged, that Prigozhin's uh, interests are still engaged in gold mining in Sudan. Um, but right now, it's not clear that there's a continuing Wagner military presence in Sudan. In both the Central African Republic and in Mali, we know that the Wagner Group has been credible accused of engaging in uh, real atrocities, in massacres of civilians, um, in uh, torture and in rape, uh, alongside the domestic security forces of both the Central African Republic and the Mali Junta that is now in charge. And that also fits what we know about what the Wagner Group has done in Ukraine, um, it, where it has also been, uh, in that case, by the United Nations, um, uh, uh, sort of indicted for the role that it has played. Uh, in the torture and murder uh, alongside regular Russian military forces um, of civilians, uh, especially in eastern Ukraine. Um, and so we know that it is a horrific group. We know that it engaged in atrocities against civilians also in Libya during the time that the warlord uh, 
Khalifa Haftar was attempting to make his uh, move towards Tripoli and to capture Tripoli. He failed. Um, but we know that the Wagner group left behind um, uh, uh, mines and um, improvised explosive devices in civilian areas, in homes when it was withdrawing. So it just has an absolutely horrible record um, of committing civilian atrocities. And I would just remind us all that that makes it not much different from the Russian uniformed military forces. Sometimes uh, people almost make a distinction between what the Wagner group has been doing and what the uniformed Russian military has doing. But in uh, places ranging from Afghanistan under Soviet times, in Chechnya, in Syria, and now in Ukraine, we see the Russian uniformed forces doing things that are very similar um, to what Wagner forces are doing. And of course, most of the Wagner forces, many of them at least, um, are um, former uh, Russian uniformed military officers. They're veterans from Russia. Um, finally, uh, Professor Martin, if you could say what we know at the moment of uh, Prigozhin's whereabouts, as well as many or some of uh, Wagner's uh, mercenaries, there, of course, the, the assumption is that he's now in Belarus, but you have said that, in fact, very, very little satellite imagery exists that could show one way or another if they are there. Uh, the BBC World Service this morning reported that some flight uh, tracker data has shown that his private jet went into Belarus, but then was shown leaving the following day and returning to his hometown in Russia. What do we know of uh, uh, where he is and what the status? I mean, is Wagner now, to the extent that it exists as, a, as a, a, an entity, going to be disbanded as a result of this? We have no idea. Uh, uh, the truth is that Prigozhin has not been seen since Saturday night uh, when he uh, left uh, Rostov. Um, he uh, issued an audio statement on Sunday, um, but it's not clear when that audio statement was actually recorded. Um, and there has been no sighting of him since then. So President Lukashenko of Belarus says that he is in Belarus, uh, but we don't know. Again, there was this statement that came across on a uh, Russian uh, military associated uh, social media site indicating that he has until July 1st to leave Russia, but we don't know. We don't know who was on his plane as it went back and forth. And and uh, we don't know what's going to happen to the Wagner group. There has been no official statement that the Wagner group was going to be disbanded. Um, and um, because the Wagner group doesn't actually exist as a formal entity in Russia, I think that that's very unclear. What does seem to be increasingly clear is that there is some kind of a um, action being taken in Russia against high ranking military officers, uh, uniformed officers who may have been uh, supporting Prigozhin. Sorovikin is the the one that has now seemed to be confirmed um, by the most Western media sources as having been detained. We don't know that he's actually been imprisoned. He may just being, uh, be being questioned by the FSB for his role in things, but he has not been seen uh, since Saturday. Um, apparently, his family has not heard anything from him since Saturday. Um, and so it appears that there may be some form of investigation or house cleaning taking part um, in Russia of uniformed Russian military sources uh, who may have been on Prigozhin side. Um, and uh, that's that's about all we know at this point. Well, we want to thank you, Kimberly Martin, for joining us, professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University. Next up, the media is doing a great job covering the smoke unleashed by the wildfires raging in Canada. But what about the fire and where it comes from? We're going to look at climate silence in the media. Stay with us. 
you'll cry and cry and try to sleep but sleep won't come the whole night through your cheating heart will tell on you when tears come down like falling rain you'll toss around and call my name you'll walk the floor the way I do your cheating heart you're cheating hard by Hank Williams here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We turn now to the climate crisis and its impacts being felt across the United States from the Midwest to the East Coast as millions face record heat and horrible air quality from smoke unleashed by the Canadian wildfires, hundreds of them. About 20 states that are home to nearly a third of the American population are under air quality alerts, including Chicago. You kind of smell it now. Now you kind of smell it. So I keep a mask on at all times to protect our elders. And so, but now I think we need a mask on for this, too. I feel like we should fix this if we can. It seems like we should be doing something about it. Meanwhile, in Canada, Toronto's air quality is among the worst in the world due to the wildfire smoke. This comes as more than 45 million Americans are living in places that were under heat alerts Wednesday. A heat dome is lingering over Texas, where temperatures have reached some of the hottest on Earth. California is expecting a heat wave this weekend. An increased use of solar power in Texas has reportedly helped to stop the state's energy grid from collapsing. Meanwhile, new report by the group Stand.Earth and the University of Waterloo shows pension funds with major fossil fuel stocks have been tanking compared to those divested in order to reduce their carbon footprint. For more, we're joined by longtime Canadian climate activist Sapura Berman, international program director at Stand.Earth and chair of the Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty Initiative. Her most recent article for The Guardian titled Canada is on Fire and Big oil is the arsonist. You know, Tsipora, here in the United States, we are hearing about the terrible effects, and we experience them in New York, of the apocalypse caused by the Canadian wildfires. But we don't hear about how Canadians are dealing with these 500 wildfires. Can you talk about what's happening there, and then this larger connection to the climate catastrophe? Absolutely. Thanks, Amy. What's happening across the country is devastating. What we need to remember is that this is the beginning of wildfire season in Canada. So we have now, as you said, close to 500 fires burning across the country. Officials are saying at least 200 of them are out of control and could burn the entire summer. So there has been over 8 million hectares of, of forest destroyed already this fire season. That's about 20 million acres. 120,000 people have had to um, uh, be evacuated and, and leave their homes. And, of course, the smoke is choking people in Toronto and Ottawa and Montreal and, 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 and now throughout the United States. Uh, Sapporo, could you uh, elaborate? Let's go to the, the article that you wrote, Canada is on fire and big oil is the arsonist. Could you elaborate? What are the points that you make there? 
Well, just two weeks ago, new scientific research from the Climate Hub of the Union of Concerned Scientists made a direct and measurable link between the increase in wildfires, not only in Canada, but also in the United States, and, and, the, and the carbon emissions from major fossil fuel producers. In fact, they looked at the Carbon Majors study, and they showed that there are 88 companies that are responsible for the emissions that are trapped in our atmosphere today and literally smothering the earth, causing this dramatic increase in wildfires, the heat domes that you talked about, the floods, extreme weather. And so these 88 companies are directly responsible for what we are experiencing right now. 13 of those companies are in, are in Canada. We hear a lot about the smoke, but people aren't really talking about the fact that 86% of the emissions trapped in our atmosphere today, they come from three products, oil, gas, and coal. And the fossil fuel industry it has been shown in, in courts across the world and in the United States that these companies knew. They knew what their products were going to do decades ago. They denied it. They delayed it. They delayed progress of policy. They're spending a half a billion dollars a year, the fossil fuel industry, to lobby against and weaken climate policy. And, and, and now, and, and they've slowed down the transition to cleaner, safer electricity systems, to cleaner, safer uh, transit, ways to heat our homes without poisoning us. You know, in, in, in some ways, this is, this is like big tobacco when they knew uh, decades ago, except they're not just poisoning us, they're poisoning our whole families, and they're threatening the air we breathe and a stable climate. And Sabora, could you speak in this context about the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, and the Trudeau administration's response to it? You know, in, in a lot of ways, if, if you know, we, we talk about the big areas of carbon that are under, still underneath the ground, the oil, the, the fracked gas, uh, the coal that is, that is still underneath the ground as, as, um, as carbon bombs. And, and the, the Trans Mountain is a, you know, the Trudeau lit a fuse to one of the largest carbon bombs on the planet. The, what's really uh, fascinating right now is that we're seeing investors pull away from major fossil fuel projects, not just in Canada, but around the world, because they know that renewables are cheaper and they can see that climate policy is going to have to constrain fossil fuel projects if we're going to keep the world safe. And so investors pulled out of Trans Mountain, and the government turned around and funded it with public dollars. Now close to over well over $20 billion of taxpayers' money has gone into this, this pipeline project that crosses 3,000 streams. That would be the, you know, if it goes forward, and, it, and right now it's being built, it's going to facilitate the expansion of the oil sands, which is one of the dirtiest oils on earth. You know, at a time when we know demand for oil is, is peaking and going down because around the world we're moving to renewable energy and electric cars. But there was a time when we all thought with climate policy that if demand went down, then fossil fuels would just be constrained. But every government wants to be the last barrel sold. So they're keeping these projects alive, like Prime Minister Trudeau did, by subsidizing them or even outright buying them. So, and, and that's why uh, 
Sorry. Sapora Berman, I want to ask you uh, two last questions. I mean, clearly here the hope is activism. That's what changes things. You're a longtime Canadian activist. We're actually speaking to you in Cuernavaca, Mexico, not where you fled to. You're going back to Canada today, but where there is an environmental conference. Can you talk about that activism and also the Pathway Alliance's connection to the Canadian fossil fuel industry and their Let's Clean the Air campaign? It's a particular kind of Hoover, Hoover that the, the Pathway Alliance right now is pushing ads across the country. Uh, let's clear the air campaign. And explain what the Pathway this Alliance is. The, is. So the Pathway Alliance is an association of the lar- some of the largest oil and gas companies in Canada. This is their new uh, advertising campaign to try and convince people that they're part of the solution. Uh, but the fact is that you know, we now have studies over the last month that show that the, the oil company's net zero plans are meaningless. Uh, this week, Shell announced it's going to increase production. And, and the work of InfluenceMap has shown us that these companies are spending literally billions on advertising to show that they're green and they're investing in renewables and, and carbon capture. But the fact is that over 90% of their investment is in new oil and gas, expanding the problem. So, you know, I, the, the fact is that these are the most powerful companies on earth. And this lobby has been holding us back from addressing the climate emergency. And, and that's why it's critical that citizens stand up and call on our governments to stand up to big oil and, and protect people. It's, it's essential that we organize. Organizing for divestment in the last decade has resulted in $40 trillion being moved out of fossil fuels. And just yesterday, a new report showed that if pension funds across North America had divested 10 years ago, then they would have saved literally $21 billion. It it makes sense to do this now. It doesn't make sense to continue to invest in new oil, gas, and coal, but our governments continue to do it because the lobby is just so powerful. And they're going to continue to push for more fossil fuel development because they're still making billions in profits. In fact, last year was the most profitable year ever for the fossil fuel industry. So we need people to stand up to this industry. We need activism to protest in the streets, to demand our government's uh, stand up to this industry. And we also need international cooperation. And that's why people around the world are now calling for a fossil fuel nonproliferation treaty to complement the Paris Agreement, because the Paris Agreement doesn't constrain the production of fossil fuels. And we know today that we need to ensure absolute emissions and production decline. So we need to protest at home, and we need to call on our governments to cooperate urgently to stop the expansion of fossil fuels. Sapora Berman, we want to thank you for being with us with Standot Earth and chair of the Fossil Fuel Treaty. We're going to link to your piece in The Guardian, Canada is on fire and big oil is the arsonist. As we bring in Genevieve Gunther, founding director of End Climate Silence, a volunteer group dedicated to helping the media cover the climate crisis with the urgency it deserves. She tweeted Wednesday, a grim milestone, the top four stories after the Russia headliner on the New York Times app are all climate change stories. Of course, only one article, an explainer piece, actually mentions the climate crisis, and none mention fossil fuels. This is a fail, Professor Gunther says. Um, Welcome to Democracy Now! 
So many people would say the weather is being covered constantly. Uh, yet you had a group called End Climate Silence. Talk about what's missing. So I founded End Climate Silence in 2018 after I spent a morning in my car listening to public radio and hearing three segments on stories that were clearly climate stories. One was about the drought in the Pacific Northwest. One was about the floods in Japan that year that had displaced millions and millions of people. And another one was about how self-driving cars would change the way we moved around and changed our transportation systems. And none of those stories even mentioned climate change, even though clearly climate change was playing a role in the creation of those stories and would have a role in the ongoing uh, transportation systems that we would need to create in order to halt global heating. And so I founded End Climate Silence in order to try to teach the news media that even if you're not telling what you think is a science story or an environment story, even if you're reporting on breaking news as this, you know, smoke all across the United States clearly is, you need to connect the dots to what you're, from what you're reporting to the climate crisis and then through the climate crisis to the use of fossil fuels that is heating up our planet. So for example, most of the stories on the wildfire smoke would talk about the unprecedented wildfires that are raging across Canada right now. And some of them even discussed the, the heat and the drought that's been creating this fire weather north of the United States. But none of them actually articulated the words climate change, and they didn't explain that it is the ongoing use of fossil fuels that is putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and creating these conditions for these extreme weather events, these disasters, which are already affecting Americans' health, Americans' safety, Americans' ability to live normal lives. So our job and the job of the news media is to every story make those connections between what's being reported and the reality of the crisis, because if you don't do that, you're actually performing a kind of climate denial where you are pretending that something that is happening is not happening, where you are proceeding as if the climate crisis weren't already here and weren't already hurting us, hurting our children, hurting our ability to live normal lives and be healthy. So we need to stop this practice. We need to end climate silence and always make that link to the climate crisis, even if you're not writing a specifically a specific climate story or a science story or an environment story. So, Genevieve, before we conclude, if you could explain, presumably you've spoken to some of these journalists, journalists who cover these stories without talking about the climate crisis. What do you understand about why this issue is uh, not highlighted in their reporting? Well, I think it's... Um, I think that two things need to happen. There needs to be more education about climate change in news media. So reporters who are put onto the climate beat obviously are duty bound to educate themselves about the climate crisis. But other reporters, for example, the Chicago bureau chief who wrote one of these stories in the New York Times that didn't mention the climate crisis. These reporters don't have any particular professional obligation as it stands now to learn about the climate crisis. But 
as our planet heats up, even if we, you know, even if we phase out fossil fuels as soon as possible, we are going to continue to see some of these extreme weather events uh, until our, you know, climate reaches a certain equilibrium. So all reporters, no matter what their beat, need to be educated in the climate crisis. And so this needs to happen in journalism programs. And it also needs to happen in onboarding of new journalists into television stations, into newspapers, into radio stations. All venues need to have a kind of institutionalized method to um, educate their reporters about the climate crisis. And then there needs to be a culture shift where editors understand that the climate crisis is no longer a story simply for the science or environment section. It's a story that is on the front page nearly every day, especially in the summers. And it behooves everybody to make those connections so that readers, viewers, listeners, all citizens can be educated and informed so that they can make the decisions they need to make in the ballot box as activists, as consumers, as Americans and human beings on this planet. And we just have 30 seconds. I know there are meteorologist groups that, um, for example, are doing show your stripes that show the climate catastrophe when they're showing the weather. And finally, 30 seconds on your article, we need to talk about the carbon footprints of the rich, dramatically unequal consumption, lies at the heart of the climate crisis. Your final comment. Yes. I mean, my point there is that sometimes we think about emissions in terms of national contributions to the carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. But I think it's actually more useful to think about this in terms of class. So it's the top 10 percent of people in income brackets who are contributing the vast majority of emissions. The top 1 percent, some of these people have carbon footprints that rise over a thousand tons of carbon a year. And we know that billions of people in Africa and in the global south emit almost no carbon at all. And yet they're the people who are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. They are on the front lines. It's coming for us all. But obviously, the poorest people are suffering first and worst. So what I'm arguing there is that we don't only need to think about national policy and federal policy, but we need to start talking about a new culture where rich people are not allowed to burn down this planet um, well, we're with gonna, impunity. We have to leave it there, but we'll continue to cover this issue. Genevieve Gunther, founding director of End Climate Silence, professor at New School. This is Democracy Now! Next up to Montana, we'll speak with a teenager who joined other teens in bringing suit against Montana. Stay with us.
Silver and Gold by Gabby Lala. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we turn to Montana, where a youth-led climate trial just ended after five days of dramatic testimony on who can be held responsible for the climate crisis. The landmark case was led by 16 children and young adults, ranging in age from 5 to 22. They accuse the state of Montana of violating their constitutional rights as it pushed pro-fossil fuel policies that devastated the environment and severely impacted their health. The case is the first of its kind to go to trial in the United States and focuses on a provision in the Montana Environmental Policy Act that blocks Montana from considering how its energy economy may contribute to the climate crisis. A ruling is expected in the coming weeks. We're joined now from Missoula, Montana, by Grace Gibson Snyder. She's a 19-year-old plaintiff in the landmark Held versus State of Montana climate trial. She was 16 when it started. And we're joined by Nate Bellinger, lead attorney in the trial, senior attorney at the public interest nonprofit law firm, Our Children's Trust. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Nate Bellinger, let's begin with you. Lay out the legal theory of this case. Sure. So this case argues that the state of Montana is violating the constitutional rights of these 16 youth plaintiffs by affirmatively promoting fossil fuels as the state's primary energy resource. So all of the fossil fuels in Montana that are being extracted, transported, burned, that's all being done with authorization and permits from the government. And those fossil fuels are resulting in significant greenhouse gas emissions that are exacerbating the climate crisis, harming the youth plaintiffs, and ultimately, we argue, violating their constitutional rights. Uh, Grace Gibson Snyder, could you explain what uh, made you get involved in this lawsuit and what you hope comes out of it? Of course. So I my first memory of thinking about climate change, I was about five years old um, and my best friend is from the Marshall Islands. And we heard that because of climate change, the Marshall Islands would be underwater within 50 years or so. And so we made posters um, that said, save the Marshall Islands and hung them up around our uh, neighborhood. I remember spelling ocean, O-S-H-I-N. I I saw that on a picture of the posters recently. Um, And then from there in high school, I started getting involved with kind of local organizations and, and organizing against plastic waste. But through that and through the research I was doing, I realized that as much work as I put in on the local level, as much change as we made here, it would always be less efficient than having policy change. And so then I started looking for ways to get involved at a kind of a statewide level. And I found out about our children's trust through a, a club that I was in at school um, called Students Against Violating the Environment. And I reached out to our children's trust and started talking with the attorneys about what being a plaintiff would entail. I asked my parents for permission eventually, and then three and a half years later, here we are. Uh, Nate, and if you could uh, tell us how the Montana uh, state government has responded. I I just saw a note saying that, uh, quoting a spokesperson for the Montana state attorney general, saying that the lawsuit is, quote, a publicity stunt staged by an out-of-state organization that has exploited well-intentioned children and forced Montana taxpayers to foot the bill. Yeah, so the the state of Montana has largely responded with statements such as that you just read, which are are not legal defenses. 
And the reason why they're not, why they're responding this way is because they don't have strong legal arguments to defend the case. We presented compelling expert testimony from Montana's top climate scientists about Montana's role in causing and contributing to climate change. And the state doesn't really have a defense to that. They called one expert at trial. They didn't have any climate scientists. And their main defense really is Montana's greenhouse gas emissions are too small in the global scheme of things to matter. But we provided expert testimony at court to show that Montana's greenhouse gas emissions are significant, both nationally and globally, especially when you already have a dangerous situation with dangerous levels of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere and an ongoing climate crisis. So Montana's emissions are significant. They're exacerbating the climate crisis. And the state really doesn't have any defense to that or to their ongoing use of fossil fuels. So they resort to these kind of, you know, statements such as accusing us of youth, of using the youth plaintiffs. But anybody who heard any of the plaintiffs testify at trial know that is totally not true. And these plaintiffs have really deeply compelling and personal reasons for being involved in this case and for needing to protect their rights. Grace Gibson Snyder, I want to make sure you have the last word. Um, you had to cancel soccer practice, your school, because of the smoke. Can you talk about um, the response of the fossil fuel industry in Montana and the ages um, of your co-plaintiffs? You testified in the trial. We were showing images of you from five years old to 22. Yeah, so um, we all have experienced climate change in different capacities. Uh, you mentioned soccer, and for me, that was a big one. I grew up playing soccer. I played through high school, and I had, I mean, a handful at least of practices and games canceled or postponed every year because of the wildfire smoke, which gets so dense here towards the end of every summer and in the early fall that it's dangerous to be outside. Um, it's dangerous to exercise for sure. And so and that's exacerbated by climate change and drier forests and higher temperatures. I've also seen uh, melting glaciers in Glacier National Park, which of course is a landmark of Montana's landscape. And watching those glaciers melt is such a you know, devastating thing because it's it's so iconic for the state. It's so essential for the well-being of the people and of the environment here. And it's just beautiful. And I would hate to be a part of a future where that's not present, where that's not a thing that my kids get to grow up with. And so, you know, those are my impacts. And, and the plaintiffs in the case um, have, you know, everything from respiratory illnesses that are exacerbated by climate change to uh, a cattle ranch where the cattle are dying because of drought and famine and et cetera. And so it's been, we all have experienced this in different capacities, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm bolstered by the fact that Montana is uh, fundamentally um, reliant upon, but also super appreciative of the natural environment. Grace Gibson-Snyder, we have to leave it there. 19-year-old plaintiff in the Montana trial. Thanks to Nate Vellinger. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks for joining us.